The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you, directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. I'm your host, Dr. Patricia Halligan. We're here today to talk about binge eating disorder. It's the most common eating disorder worldwide and affects both men and women. Binge eating disorder affects three times the number of those diagnosed with anorexia and bulimia combined. It carries so much shame and demoralization that people often hide in their house and avoid seeking treatment. They're judged and shamed by family, doctors, and society. They feel embarrassed, and they become more and more socially isolated. It affects their quality of life. They try diet after diet. Ultimately, 95% will regain the weight within one to five years. I want to do a podcast that offers some hope to those suffering from binge eating disorder. Today's podcast offers evidence-based treatment that works. It's research-supported and has nothing to do with finding the right diet. Our guest today is Alexandra Wilkos. I first met Allie when we were both working in Rochester, New York at the Healing Connection, a partial hospital program for eating disorders. We've shared many patients over the years. She's one of the warmest, most compassionate therapists I've ever had the pleasure of working with. She is a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the treatment of eating disorders and has been working in the field for over 15 years, has served the community at every level of care, including inpatient, outpatient, and partial hospitalization. Allie Wilkos is currently the clinical director at Montanito and Affiliates, which offers residential eating disorder treatment to clients of all genders. She is board, a board member on the Western New York Comprehensive Care Center's Community Advisory Board and currently runs a small eating disorders private practice. Allie is pursuing a doctorate in social work with a focus on implementation science in the hopes to continue to bridge research and practice and encourage the use of innovative and effective interventions. Allie, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. What is binge eating disorder? What is binge eating disorder? So I, I think you did a really great job just illustrating the prevalence of binge eating disorder and some of the most common feelings. Um, but uh, to be really specific, kind of using the diagnostic um, manual, uh, binge eating disorder, if someone meets criteria if they have recurrent um, episodes of binge eating, which is defined by a experiencing a loss of control while eating significantly larger amounts of food in a shorter period of time than most people would. Um, in addition, a person will struggle with at least three of the following. Uh, one would be eating faster than normal or eating until they are uncomfortably full, eating a large quantity of food when they're not hungry, eating in isolation due to embarrassment and feeling disgusted with oneself, depressed and or guilty after a binge. 
So yeah. I think that that feeling piece is the one that differentiates because oftentimes people will make jokes and say, I think I have binge eating disorder, um, you know, after a large meal, after Thanksgiving dinner or something mm -hmm. of that nature. Uh, but really, it's the it's the depression and the and the shame and the guilt that accompanies it that really can set it apart from other experiences. So if I'm a doctor or a therapist, what are the good questions for me to be asking? So the, I think with, with, as with any other eating disorder, the good questions are always the direct questions, the ones that go right to the point. So if someone is, if you're asking about eating habits in general, which I feel as though we should in the mental health field, since they're so related to, to our, to the symptoms people are experiencing, the way one eats is really important. Um, and if someone starts to point to the fact that they feel as though they are overeating, then going a little bit further than that, like if they're sharing, oh, I think I, I binge at night or I binge when or I eat a lot when no one's around, um, being able to ask more specifically, tell, you know, tell me more about that. How much are you eating and what, what does that look like? And if they say just cookies and, and, or something of that nature, then how many, you know, going really far into what that looks like without any judgment, just talking about it as you would anything else. Like if you were asking about sleep, uh, it's just equally as important. And then also how does that feel after and, and what do you do in response to that? Because oftentimes people will restrict their intake to compensate for a binge the previous day. And so, you know, while some people might have a really large meal or a night where they eat more than usual, the next day they get up and start their day again. Oftentimes people with binge eating disorder will try to not to eat the rest of the day, which kind of sets them up for the same routine. So asking about how frequently they're eating, how, how much they're eating and how just going that next step. And then so get, how does it get feel? specific, get really specific, specific, right? I mean, it's an embarrassing uh, thing to talk about. It's the same as if I'm asking somebody about their drinking, mm -hmm. but if they're knocking on my door and they say to me, I think I have a drinking problem. I get really specific. It's like, well, um, how much do you drink and how is it a daily thing and how big is the glass? So yeah, it's not enough just to take somebody's weight and hear that they're unhappy with their weight. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and, and I'm sure when you're asking about drinking, it's well, you drink a couple of times a week, you know, but then, yeah. like you said, how big is the glass? And then keep just like continuing to go with that um, is really important because they're questions that, especially with food, people don't tend to ask either. Like, you know, they don't, no one will go that far because it is embarrassing and shameful and that's understandable, you know. And, and if somebody is um, coming to your door in your private practice or to your residential treatment or to a partial hospital program for binge eating disorder, what are the presenting problems? Like what kinds of things bring them into treatment? How do they present typically? What's something like a patient might say to you on the very first consultation? I can't do this anymore uh. tends to be the one that comes out the most um, that this typically has gone on for a long time that, and, and it's something that they've been struggling with in shame and, and with shame and, and in secrecy and without any support from anyone um, because it is so hard to tell even your closest people. So typically it's, you know, a little bit of what brings you here today. is just, I, I just can't do this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. I, I'm in the, I'm in this terrible cycle with my eating and um, I really need some help. And so I think that that is like the one thing I most commonly hear is the exhaustion from the illness and not even really understanding what it is. So I don't know why I do this. I've tried every diet in the world. I've tried to do all of the things people tell me to do and I just can't seem to stop this. And, and then, you know, comes in all the psychoeducation is you can't stop it because it, it is a disease and it, it needs support like everything else. So that, but that exhaustion 
is typical. I have a patient in one of my treatment groups <clears throat> and she is in a group of uh, nine people and most everybody in the group is in recovery from an alcohol or a drug problem. And she always says, I envy you guys so much because you guys can do abstinence, but I can't. I just have to battle my trigger and face my trigger several times a day. I can't not eat for the rest of my life. It's, there's so much desperation and so much self-loathing, you know, it's just, and it, yeah. it is, they're living a secret life, like you said, right? Yeah, definitely. And if you think about all of the events that, and a similar alcohol is involved in a lot of social events as well. But I mean, with food, that is part of the culture, that is part of the family, that is part of um, your faith. Oftentimes it's always coming together around food. So yeah, having to face that and learn how to be in relationship with that in the context of others consistently, like that's really another challenge. It's, it's everywhere. And who's at risk for developing a binge eating disorder? Or is there a certain personality type or uh, what, what sets somebody up? I, I, th that's a question people ask often too, what causes it? You know, what brings this on? And I, it's yeah. really the perfect storm. Um, people tend to have, you know, like obviously we live in a society that perpetuates beliefs and behaviors that, are unhealthy when it comes to eating, uh, lots of dieting. And so they say one of the main predictors of the development of binge eating disorder is a previous history of dieting. So um, people who have longstanding, like have gone on every diet, have tried everything will be a good um, predictor. In addition to that, people who struggled with weight issues as, as, you, as a young person and whose family made it something that was an issue. Um, because then food is always immediately the enemy and then that you don't ever really learn how to form a relationship with it. So that's in your home, that's in your safe space. And then you go out into the world that also perpetuates these beliefs and it, it becomes almost impossible to understand how to eat, when to eat. So then I don't eat, but then the body kicks in and you're hungry. So I think that those are the two things that they say with binge eating disorder specifically is, is um, like a history of bullying or being, you know, paid attention to a lot around weight as a young person. And I think with this big push towards obesity and matching out for the youth, youth and obesity and making kids move, the intention is really good. Uh, but oftentimes they're so impressionable and there's so much to, to try to take in at that age that when your body becomes your enemy, you have a really hard time understanding how to nourish it. And is there a family history involvement? Like, I don't know if there's addiction in the family, does that set the person up for an eating disorder? Because I think we call these process addictions, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, there's been, there's a lot of research going on around that, which is really neat in epigenetics as well. Um, but they say that there's a, there is a genetic component to the development of an eating disorder. And then there's also that, um, tendency for people to be wired in a more anxious way um, in general uh, and or depressive way. So struggling with one or, of the, or the other. And then um, it's hard to tell whether or not that is learned in the home because the behaviors with the food, or if it is actually uh, genetic and, and something in your chromosomes, which they have found with anorexia. So now they're doing some of that work with binge eating disorder as well. Oh, that's fascinating. So if you're the mother trying to raise a child without an eating disorder, it's really hard because the culture is still idolizing, uh, idealizing uh, thinness. Yeah. Yeah. So that's their, that's what I mean. As a, as a parent, you can do what you can in the home. You have to send them out in the world. 
And so trying to trying to undo some of those messages as we do with so many other things, you can't protect it 100%. So it's uh, that perfect storm of how they're how people are wired versus how they're physiologically built and what is accepted because we all have a body type that we come into this world in and, and, and we have to accept that as it is. And when you live in a place that says, no, you don't, you have to change that and only be this one type. So if you're not in that category and you are wired a particular way and your family culture is that way, you kind of get this perfect storm. Um, Absolutely. That makes sense. Do people with binge eating disorder tend to be obese? I mean, I, this is a tough one. So mm -hmm. yes, I think so. Um, they, that it tends to be more living in larger bodies. And at the same time, it might be that those are the people that come forward for help. So I, I don't know that, you know, again, with the shameful piece and not wanting to not wanting to let people know that this is something that they do. If you are living in a body that isn't as affected by it, because there are several people who struggle that are in, you know, in their, within a weight range that is accept that is like appropriate for their. But oftentimes the people who are presenting for treatment are are in a larger body. And so is dieting part of the treatment for binge eating disorder? No. Ah, okay. No, no. So that's no. where you're going to lose a lot of people, I think, because everybody I've ever met who has extra weight on them and they binge eat, the only thing they want is to be thin, right? Yes. Yeah. So, and when they, when they come to treatment, that is the first question. I just need to lose some weight. I need to stop doing this. Right. Um, especially in higher levels of care where you are, have access right to a dietitian and, and to a doctor right in those places. Um, and quickly, the answer is, I, I, I understand that. And at the same time, you don't know what your body needs yet. So it's impossible to figure out at what point it would even be in a deficit to be dieting or to lose weight. And what we've found is that when you stabilize the intake and, and give someone a like a healthy diet plan that works for them, weight comes off. The weight, you know, just it comes off naturally because people are not are meant to go kind of back to their set point. And sometimes people's set point, the point that their body is, like I said, isn't going to meet societal standard of what that is. And that's a p piece of like acceptance that you have to do, you have to have. And then you're like grieving, letting go of the ideal body that you want, knowing that that's just not maybe the way you're built. That's not how it is. Um, and there's a lot of that in that sort of health at every size movement, which, which discusses, you know, your health isn't correlated with your weight necessarily. So it's important to to know that maybe that's not where you're going to be. But I do think that if you follow a meal plan and can interrupt the symptoms of binging, naturally your people go lose weight as a, as like a byproduct. And they don't tend to believe that on day one, do they? No. <laughs> right. They no. have all sorts of rules and rigidity and forbidden foods that are pretty ingrained, right. That they've been living this life for years and to tell them that you want them to eat what, a couple of balanced meals a day with some snacks. Yeah. 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 It goes against everything that, that they've, that has been taught, you know, and, and everybody who has tried to support them up to this point, oftentimes people will go to their primary care physician for support with this. And I mean, we've all been to the primary care physician and they love to talk about how every problem we have is immediately associated with our weight. And so, oh, yeah. you know, just maybe if you lose some weight, then everything else will just magically clear up. And so, that's the messages they're getting not only from from society, not only from billboards and magazines and social media, but also from people who are trusted health professionals. So it's hard to 
come in and say, well, I'm a social worker and I'm telling you that this is, you know, this is actually going to be the best course of action for long-term success. Right. But it takes, it takes letting go of a lot of, a lot of strong and ingrained beliefs and just having trust in the treatment team that you're working with. I have a couple of patients who haven't seen their primary care doctor for years uh, because they were uh, shamed basically by the primary care doc. And I always tell my patient, you don't have to be weighed at your primary care doc's office. You can tell them that you're seeking help, uh, you know, for your binge eating disorder and you don't wish to discuss it with him uh, or you don't want to talk about your weight. You've got a treatment plan for it if it's not the right primary care doc or change primary care docs so that they're more sensitive. I had a patient in my um, Tuesday night group and he struggled, you know, this fellow, we worked with him together and he struggled with uh, morbid obesity. He'd had a gastric bypass and then he developed alcoholism. And when the alcohol uh, problem was controlled, he regained a hundred pounds and he was in my uh, group. And one of the other patients said to him, you know what, at four o'clock, you know what I do every day around, you know, mid afternoon, I have a tangerine, you know, and my patient just looked at him and he, you know, he'd been to residential treatment. He'd been to the partial hospital program. He's been on every diet known to man. He knows nutrition better than the nutritionist does. It's insulting. Everybody's got a piece of advice and wisdom for the the person who struggles with weight. Like it, it never occurred to him to eat fruit. (laughs) Yeah, it is insulting. And I think you're absolutely right. People who struggle with this have can have like an honorary PhD in, nutri- in nutrition at times. They, they know, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not about knowing and doing, it's about feeling and being. And I think that's the part that gets missed all the time. And it's, and it's the part that's hardest to go after because it's just, oh, it's all about behavior change with food. And no, it's not. He knows to eat the tangerine. If that's, if he would like a snack, that would be a, a good choice. Maybe it's, it's not, not that simple. That. So it's right. not about diets. It's not about exercise. It's, it's, it's really more about treating the thinking and the feelings underlying the binge eating disorder. And I think you told me also, there are some interpersonal deficits uh, that a lot of these people actually, uh, they need to learn some interpersonal skills that will be helpful on their healing recovery. So tell us, um, what is research supported treatment? So they are doing a lot of work in the field of eating disorders on, on the, you know, identifying and developing the evidence-based practices that are best suited for, for eating disorders and for binge eating disorder specifically, they find that a lot of success um, and research has proven time and time again, that cognitive behavioral therapy and interpersonal therapy tend to be the two first line approaches, which makes a lot of sense. So, you know, if your cognitive uh, behavioral therapy, CBT, they have a dash for BED. It's just a modified um, approach to cognitive CBT, which is basically just challenging your thoughts, you know, and, and understanding how different thinking patterns are going to lead to different behaviors, which are, you know, then going to have a consequence to that. And it kind of goes in this cycle. So, if you're thinking when you, we were talking a lot about diet, dieting and diet beliefs and how you feel about yourself. And if you're all of your thinking patterns is if, if I eat this, I don't know, candy bar, then I'm a bad person. And I might as well just eat the whole candy bar, which then leads to a binge, you know, instead of in challenging that sort of all or nothing thinking and saying, I, I, you know, can eat a candy bar for dessert and 
that just means that I wanted something sweet and now I'm going to go do the next thing. So being able to challenge those underlying thoughts that are so that we, that are almost automatic at that point. Right. So first identifying them and then challenging them would be important. So that's going to be pretty hard, right? <laughs> it, yeah. Because if I tell you I have a set weight of 110 pounds and that's when I am beautiful and that's when I am worth something. Yeah. But I can't uh, date until I get to that weight. I can't leave the house. I won't feel good about myself. I'm not worthwhile. So my value depends on the numbers on the scale, right? Yep. Yes. So you're challenging the dietary rules. You're challenging that all or nothing thinking. You're challenging um, all of the all the messages you've been sent from your family, oftentimes too, and the what you've been told. It's just yeah. There, it's on every level that you're asked to kind of modify the way that you've been thinking, which is, you know, and then it, it they can people. I've worked with several people who are very insistent. No, I need to be 110 pounds you know, yep. give me some evidence around that. Tell me about what happens at that. Wait, everything's going to be great because even subliminally, the message is lose 10 pounds and regain your life or lose, walk off those 30 pounds and find happiness. So it's like constantly the messaging. So how do you, you know, the work is to stop, say, wait a minute, what did I just hear? What did I just think? And what is another way to think about that? Which yeah, is, is really, really hard. Really hard because that's pretty much the bedrock of their entire framework that they've lived with probably since, you know, a young uh, teenager. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And what are some of the dietary rules that you have to kind of uh, challenge? Oh, so that's, that's always interesting too, right? So what is the diet of the day? There's always, you know, your one minute a banana is good for you. One minute a banana is not. One time it's okay to eat eggs. Another time it's not. So right. it's a, oftentimes, and we've seen this even over the course of the, of the years, you know, now sugar has become the enemy all of a sudden, right. where 10 years ago, fat was the enemy. And 10 years before that, there, something else was the enemy. So it's figuring out to them what their rules are. And that is a really important exercise that you can do in, in therapy is to figure out like, what are your rules? And people will say, well, I don't really have any rules. And then you start digging like, well, wh what goes on in your mind when you sit down to eat, you know? And so then- then the rules start coming out. Like I can't eat after nine. I can't eat carbohydrates. I can't. So whatever those are, it's sometimes I think even helpful to, to work with people on naming them. Right. Like realize it. Yeah. I can't eat breakfast or, you know, I have to save most of my calories toward the evening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can't eat butter. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. And, or is there a fear of losing control if they have something that tastes really delicious? Yeah, I think that that's the, you know, that's the cornerstone too of binge eating disorder is that when they get around what they often call trigger foods or, um, you know, foods that, that instantly bring up anxiety that once they start, they can't stop. Right. Um, and then, and that they're going to lose complete control, which is what happens during a binge. And then after that is going to come in all of the emotions. So part of CBT too, is understanding the intersection between your thoughts and your feelings and your behaviors and what happens you know, we see what's happening behaviorally, what's happening emotionally and naming that as well. Cause yeah, that's, that's the, the biggest fear is I'm never going to stop. So do you teach strategies how to prevent a binge? Yeah. So we try to do a lot of coping strategies and sort of the same kind of thing you feel when your anxiety starts to go up. 
So being able to, you know, doing some grounding work, breathing, even what they call like surfing the urge, which I think they often talk about that in, in addictions as well, you know, that mm-hmm. recognizing that urge, it just if you can even set a timer on your phone for 10 minutes and see what it feels like in 10 minutes. And, it, and if you still need to binge, then that's what is going to happen. But at least you've given yourself some time in the in-between to think about things and to, to use some other coping skills. I love that strategy. Anybody can surf the urge for 10 minutes. Yeah. And the cravings pass, right? The cravings will pass in 10 to 15 to 20 minutes, right? The cravings don't last longer than that. Right, right. You just have to be able to sit with that and sit in that anxiety. So, and sit in that sort of almost sometimes panic um, about not having access to the one thing that you feel is going to soothe you in that moment and trying to replace that in those 15 minutes with something different, whether it be like, journaling, calling a friend, sitting outside, anything that could distract you from that urge. I have heard that there's a negative urgency with people with binge eating disorder, where they want to get rid of a negative feeling fast. It's almost like negative feelings are bad. Anger is bad. Anxiety is bad. Sadness is bad. And I just have to stop it. It's very impulsive. It's very similar to my uh, people struggling with alcohol and drugs, right? So I love the surfing, the urge. Give me another strategy uh, before we go to break uh, for preventing a binge. It's been a, it's been a lousy day, fight with the husband, the kids are screaming, haven't had any time for myself, and I'm going to the fridge. Call a friend. So ah. connection. Connection will always, if you have someone in your world that you trust, it might be a friend, family member, whoever it might be, if you can get, a, get out of the, the craziness of the house, which usually what happens, you named perfectly the home situation, everybody goes to bed and that's when you're vulnerable. When everybody right. goes to bed, c- call a friend, get on the phone. And you know? what kind of friend would you call? Uh, like it would hopefully be somebody who is not judgmental, not shaming, and maybe has recovered from an eating disorder themselves or is struggling with one, right? That would be ideal. Yes. Right. If you could, someone who's compassionate and empathetic um, and someone who knows what you're going through, which is sometimes people are, are too afraid to tell someone, but if one person out there knows and that maybe you just need to hear them rattle on about their bad day but it will keep you from having that binge. Do you ever recommend telling people, I think you taught me this, so I know you recommend it, um, like 10 years ago when we worked together, I think you said something about write your binge out on an index card, everything you plan to eat in your binge. Like I'm going to eat um, six Boston cream pie donuts uh, from Tim Hortons, and then I'm going to get into the uh, Haagen-Dazs, and then I'm going to have some graham crackers, and I'm going to, you know, maybe finish it off with some peanut butter out of the jar. If you write it all down, what did that come from you or am I imagining it? No, we did talk about that. Yeah. Because that gives you a connection to the binge, right? That gives you the experience of being near and close to that, but not actually having, having the episode go forward. Right. So you're, it's a, it's, it's similar. And we could talk about that for hours too, with the, to the relationship, someone who struggles with anorexia has, you have this relationship with food that isn't actually eating it but you're near it. And so that could happen with, with writing binges out to say, oh, for some reason, that's a connection that, that can soothe you. Anything to delay the binge, put some time, take a pause between you and something impulsive. Now we're yes. going to have to take a short break. Uh, we've been listening to Alexandra Wilkos talk about binge eating disorder and what it is, uh, uh, some of the socialization and the, 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 sh- 
cultural shaming and doctor shaming and family shaming around the disorder uh, and how to treat it with cognitive behavioral therapy. When we come back, we're going to be taking a look at interpersonal therapy and how to manage the emotional dysregulation. So uh, we'll see you back in a couple of minutes. Thank you. Treatment of opioid use disorder is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This comprehensive video covers how to talk to patients about three FDA-approved treatment options, the research behind each medication, and how to help patients choose the right medication for them. You'll learn everything you ever wanted to know about these treatment options to be able to treat patients in your office with ease. This video simplifies the prescribing of buprenorphine and includes buprenorphine home induction instructions for patients and pamphlets for patients and their families. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com for more information. Benzodiazepines, the epidemic we aren't talking about, is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This very comprehensive video describes the dangers of taking benzodiazepines and Z-drugs long-term and teaches how to deprescribe them safely and effectively. We outline how to talk to your patients before, during, and after a long, slow Valium taper, how to build your patient a village of support, and offer a deprescribing toolkit. Find out more about this package and what it includes. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com. You are listening to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. If you, or someone you love, struggles with a substance use disorder or prescription drug dependence and would like information about resources that can help, please contact one of the following organizations. The American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, or the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. Now, back to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. And we're back to Recovery, The Hero's Journey, and today we're talking to Alexandra Wilkos, an eating disorder specialist, about binge eating disorder. And Ali, this is, this is great stuff. Can you talk a little bit about helping somebody with binge eating disorder with emotion regulation strategies? What are the emotions that a lot of people with binge eating disorder want to stuff down and not feel? What are the emotions that they have trouble feeling? And can I even generalize? It's so hard to, to think about, you know, making a, a generalization like that. And I think when we talked before a lot about the shame, that always right. comes the first, whenever you ask about an emotion, that's the first, first one that comes up. And I, I don't think I've ever worked with someone who didn't experience it. It, it is a shame-based illness as are all eating disorders. Um, and it's really hard to let people in and help and get help and support. So that would be one emotion that even though the behavior actually perpetuates the, the, the shame, it in the moment soothes it, it just stuffs it right down as you meant you said that perfectly, you know, in terms of I'm feeling this, it's coming up, I need to push it back down, cover it up. Um, so that is that is always there. There's anxiety as well, lots of uh, um, worries and concerns about the day. As you mentioned, like many of us live really stressful lives. We we can't wait until the end of the day where we get a moment to ourselves, and and then everything starts to come up. You start to think about what happened that day, and so then food pushes it back down, and that can be you know then you kind of get in that sedated feeling that you get after you have a lot, and then you start then your emotions all start coming out. So it can be. That is, that is, those are the two that kind of really jump out. Um, and then there's also the piece of people who 
unfortunately have, have struggled with a lot of trauma. And so their body is something that they're almost trying to protect and keep in a way that's safe and, and undesirable so that, so some of the trauma feelings and the, that those kinds of triggers can be, can be big for people as well. I love that you brought up trauma. I know that Tim Brewerton wrote a big article and he was talking about lifetime and current PTSD being at much higher rates among those with bulimia and with binge eating disorders. So that's a whole nother piece where, you know, sometimes you have to treat the underlying trauma. Yes. So really excitingly, uh, where I'm working currently at Montanito, Tim Brewerton works alongside some of the researchers there. And the, what they're finding is that 50 to 60% of people who present for treatment for bulimia, binge eating, um, have struggle with PTSD. And so the, the goal is to treat them concurrently, you know, and have them have both of them being able to be, so you're taking the emotions and you're taking the behaviors. Cause I think sometimes with binge eating disorder, just instantly it goes to the behaviors and it, we miss out all of the driving forces, you know? Absolutely. So if you see somebody who has been struggling with an eating disorder their whole life and can't quite get into recovery, perhaps there's untreated trauma. Yeah. And, and yeah. this is a lot of self-medication using food, right? Yeah. And sure. certainly that's true among people with alcohol problems, uh, much higher incidence of trauma and also um, with sex addiction. So yeah. there's, there's got to be a trauma piece in the recovery. And I loved what you said about the person that gets home at the end of the day and hasn't had any time for herself or himself. So there's a saying in addiction medicine, uh, deprivation breeds entitlement. So that if I don't know good self-care, I don't take care of myself and I'm spread too thin and I'm taking care of my husband and my kids and everybody at work and I don't have time to go out for lunch with a friend or go to a yoga class or go swim laps or do anything that I want to do, journal or whatever people do for self-care, then I'm going to feel entitled to that bag of potato chips. I'm going to feel entitled uh, to you know finish the pie in the, in the fridge, right? So that's got to be a part of it too, right? Is learning uh, healthy self-care. This is not simple. Yeah, yeah, definitely, for sure. I mean, how that is exactly how I would say probably 95% of people in this world, in, in America are feeling, you know, and so being able, and it's at the end of the day that people give themselves permission to take care of themselves or to slow down. And there's not much to do. And there's not much energy at 10 o'clock. It's hard, harder to go swim laps. It's harder to go to a yoga class. So yes, food, you know, going to the, to the pantry, unfortunately, becomes the one place that's easy, accessible, and works in the moment. Totally. And if, you know what, not to get too psychodynamic, but if you're a child and you are having bad feelings and you've got a depressed mother or an alcoholic mother or an absent father, you don't ever experience co-regulation with another person. So you don't know that people can soothe you, but maybe food is the only thing you've ever had, food or TV, right? Yeah. And so this is just like a very well-run uh, cycle. This is, this is a pattern that's laid down in the whole nervous system, right? This is how I soothe myself. So we're up against quite a bit when we're trying to treat this. Yeah, yeah, right? for sure. And, that, that's the, the, relations, the relational piece is huge. They, and there's never been a model for it for a lot of people. So talk to me a little bit about the interpersonal therapy that is part of this research supported evidence-based treatment for binge eating disorder. What is IPT? 
That's what I was just thinking of when you brought up the the being able to, you know, understand how to heal in context, because IPT, the focus is really on those interpersonal disconnects and the connection between the problems and then the development and the maintenance of the behaviors that go along with binge eating disorder. So it's um it's a manualized treatment. It's about usually, you know, it's a shorter treatment. It's usually about 20 weeks and it's split up into three different phases. And that very first phase of treatment is really identifying what are the disconnects. Because again, sometimes we're all moving so quickly and and that we're not even stopping to see where the disconnects exist and, and or we've lived it, in them. What is a disconnect? So any kind of relational, any kind of point of tension or misunderstanding that is relational in nature. So I always think about it um, like almost the perfect relationship being this event diagram where each side has some space to be themselves. And then there's this really nice overlap in the middle of a relationship and any disconnect is where like either this, you know, your two circles are on top of each other and there's no room for difference or your two circles are very far away and all there is is difference. And so, you know, understanding what relationships in our life are, are growth fostering are supporting that development of, of a connection with still like some independence on both ends. Um, and I think that that is a lot to think about and people get into relationships that become routine and they lose themselves in one way or another. Um, and then pretty soon, you know, other behaviors can kind of substitute in for what you're really looking for, which is that connection. So do you meet the spouses or the family members, the parents when you're treating binge eating disorder, or are you just doing this one-on-one with the patient? So I I definitely hundred percent meet the family. So for for the, unless of course the family is, is is unhealthy or unhelpful, or there's something there that, that is a warning or an alarming sign. But I think that you need what people come to for support, you have this hour where you're with someone and you're and you're, you know, doing a lot of the earliest really great work, and then you go home. You know, I had someone say to me once, like, that was really great. And then, you know, they would they told me like, for the longest time, I just walked out of your office and said, Well, no, there goes another $80, you know, like just kind of like laughing in terms of and, and she told me this later on, because she had been in recovery, and how long it took, because she would go back into her environment. And then everything would just start all over again. So, so without interpersonal skills, right? Right. Without, without the interpersonal skills. And you can't, you can't really see someone in relationship with others without actually seeing someone. So everything that they're explaining comes to life when you bring in partners or you bring in parents or children or friends, uh, as many people as possible, because then you can start to see that person in context and things start to make much more sense. So the interpersonal skills, give me an example of one. If, if I had a binge eating disorder and I was married or in, in a uh, relationship with a, uh, a boyfriend, what would I need? Or I had an overbearing mother or a critical father, um, or I was a people pleaser. Um, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is assertiveness. Right. Ah. Being able to say and that's, again, like kind of maintaining that individuality and relationship and being able to say when something bothers you. And that's a hard one, right? Oh, yeah, that is a very hard one. And it couples right with people pleasing because we're conditioned to not rock the boat, not cause conflict oftentimes. And so taking that and saying what you do need and what isn't working well for you, you know, in, in a healthy way, not in an aggressive way, in a very healthy way that interpersonal skill can, you know, make the biggest difference in recovery. Cause when you don't know what you need, you tend to just kind of go back into yourself and the food becomes another escape. So you need to say something to the effect of 
when uh, you ask me about my weight, I feel violated. I feel embarrassed. I feel angry. In the future, I'd really like you not to ask me about my weight. That's between me and my therapist. Yep. Perfect. Even though, yep. even though I, pro- I appreciate your concern. Right. And, and maybe we can work with my therapist on having you find different ways to express concern. You know, maybe we can talk about other things outside of my weight. If you're concerned, we can talk about that. And at the same time, we can do it in a way that's respectful and, you know, being able to say that too. I'm willing to come up with strategies to have hard conversations, but I'm, I'm, the way that you're doing it currently is, is really hurtful. Okay. So assertiveness is saying no when I mean no, um, asking for a behavior change in the other person uh, or asking for help. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if I'm a stressed out mom who's working to ask for help, I might say, Hey, if I'm going to recover from this binge eating disorder, I might need money for a, I don't know, a nanny three nights a week so that I can go to, you know, whatever, uh, go to the gym, go meet a friend for, you know, a walk on the canal or uh, drop into church or whatever it is, right? I need some space or maybe I need a babysitter a couple of times a week, right? Or maybe I need you to make dinner twice a week because food preparation is hard for me. And that would be, if you want to be helpful in my recovery, that would be helpful. Is that the kind of assertiveness that you guys help teach? Yes. Yes. All of those things, right? Saying what you, knowing what you need, figuring out what you need, what you can do in therapy or you can do with your friends, however that works, uh, or your partner, and then being able to ask for that and not um, struggle with the accompanying guilt of saying what you need. I mean, you, you need something. Everybody needs something. And, and I deserve it, even if I'm not 110 pounds. Absolutely. I mean, yes. Right. I 100%. Mean, you are a human it, being with needs. We go back to deprivation breeds entitlement. If I don't get my needs met, I sure as hell, I'm going to go finish the pie in the fridge at 11 o'clock when everybody goes to bed because I'm doing everything for everybody and nobody's meeting my needs and I'm secretly resentful and I'll just keep stuffing that down. Yep, absolutely. Makes me think of this one uh, person I worked with who talked about her daughter's birthday coming up and basically wanting to make a cake. Long story short, she asked her mother, she said, I want to make my daughter's cake and her mother went ahead and made the cake for her daughter thinking she was helping maybe left it out on the table when she got home from work. She was so upset because she had explicitly said this, that she said, well, I just solved it with binging. I just, yep. that's what I did. Yep. I ate the cake. Because there's lack of um, assertiveness skills, lack of interpersonal skills, lack of emotion regulation skills, right? Yeah. Um, and a whole bunch of shame. Yep. yep. And these laid down behavioral neuro circuits pathways that have probably been there since they're very young. So this, this requires a team. Let me ask you, Ali, is there, are there manuals that um, patients can get uh, or to give to a therapist to help them work through uh, that maybe will outline the CBT exercises and the IPT exercises? Yes. So both of those interventions, actually IPT, if you went online and typed in IPT for binge eating disorder has a free course, which comes with materials that are available from the IPT Institute specifically for binge eating disorder. Oh, wow. Um, And that is accessible to everybody. And maybe now that I'm saying this out loud, they're going to start (laughs) putting a price on it. (laughs) But um, for now it's there. And same thing with um, CBT for um, binge eating disorder. There are several, if you if you just simply Google it, there are several workbooks that can come up. You can start to do some of the work at home, bring it into therapy, 
just look at it, you know, starting to think about what are some of the questions I should, I could be asking myself that I'm, I'm not even thinking of. So there's a, a lot of great material out there. And tell me a little bit, if I have binge eating disorder, when do I seek a partial hospital program? When do I go to residential treatment? Uh, what do those offer me, I guess? Or, or how do I find a good eating disorder therapist? Let's just start there. Let's just start with a basic. I Because if I just use my own therapist, maybe they're not that knowledgeable with eating disorders. Yes, it, it's it's really hard. I think the best, you know, therapists out there will be able to say that too. You know, we, we all know our limitations. I could give you a laundry list of things I would call my own limitations. And so when therapists are you know, able to say like, I actually don't do that. And let me refer you on to someone who does, um, depending on where you are, some areas are really rich with a lot of eating disorder professionals and some not so much, but if you went online to, um, the need like NIDA and it's national eating disorder association, which also has, uh, the binge eating disorder association kind of copied, copied in there. You can search therapists and providers in your area. There's also a website called like hope.org. And that also allows for a search of providers that are registered with these websites that can hopefully help. If not, I always think it's a really helpful thing to call the local, like a local facility that does maybe that does treat eating disorders. Maybe it's in one context or another, maybe it's not binge eating, but then asking them like where do you typically refer out or there's a lot of um national organizations and agencies and companies that treat eating disorders even calling you know one of these national places and saying like the place where i'm currently working you could call a, a specialist there and say do you have do you know someone in the area and there's outreach people that are available to help so so um, much help out there that people yeah. just don't know how to access Yes, I, I think probably half of our listening audience at least is thinking they're still just lazy or they lack willpower. And maybe January 1st, they're going to get their hands on the right diet that's going to cure everything. But what you're saying is you basically need a village yes. and turn it over to the experts, which you know they can really help with underlying trauma and interpersonal skills and emotion regulation skills and cognitive distortions. So this is a it's a wonderful recommendation. NEDA, N-E-D-A. Yep. NEDA. So, yep. Just type in National Eating Disorder Association and it will come up or NEDA dot, I think dot org. Okay. Um, and that's the, and that will have resources, tons and tons of resources that you can wonderful. pick from. Or hope.org, right? Yep. That was okay. another one that has it. So. What do you, what do you think about the self-help groups like Overeaters Anonymous or, uh, what else do they have out there? Um, Food Addicts Anonymous. Um, yeah, what do you what do you think? What's helpful in terms of uh, support groups, and the, are those self help groups helpful? So, I, it's always helpful to be in connection with other people who are struggling with the same things. And at the same time, some of those messages that are being spread, like in Overeaters Anonymous, that are aren't very healthy. They're very diet oriented. They're talking very much about losing weight, about, you know, cutting out. I, I know people who have gone to those meetings and talk about they, they're very concerned with sugars and coming on the right and eat certain calorie diet plans. And those are not, that is, that is not going to be helpful if you're struggling with binge eating disorder. It is going to keep you in the same cycle that it has kept you in for so long. Because again, back to the point that you, people who struggle with this know yeah. how to quote unquote eat, they understand the diets. That's not the problem. The problem is understanding the feelings. So I would say that more so you would want to look for a place that uh, treats eating disorders specifically, 
or they, there are some eating disorder anonymous groups, EDA. And that oh, would be, yeah, I've basis. heard of, I actually had a patient who started the EDA chapter in Rochester many years ago oh, after yeah. she went to Rosewood ranch an inpatient facility in Arizona. She did that for 45 days. And then she went to an LA halfway house for many months. I mean, she, this was for bulimia. So, okay. So EDA eating disorders, anonymous, not as restrictive as uh, Overeaters Anonymous. I know Overeaters Anonymous will tell you to have a gray sheet where you don't eat anything white. Yeah. Yeah. No. Right. So, right. That's so right away, I'm like, no, 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 sugar. Because no, no. right. that is, that is a distortion. That is all or nothing thinking that is good and bad, right and wrong. And that is the fuel for an eating disorder, no matter what symptoms you're struggling with. So if you were to go to an EDA meeting, that type of language wouldn't be acceptable. Like that, that is not going to be allowed. That is nothing when you're depriving yourself, as you talked about before, it's only going to lead to uh, an indulgence, so, so to speak, which is going to then lead to shame and guilt. It's going to perpetuate the same cycle. And I would just encourage people to think about all the times that they have, whether it be like a no white food, whatever thing that they have tried in the past and how that worked. And you have the data to say it, it doesn't work. It, it's I, I had a patient who, well, I have a patient right now. She just eats candy uh, only. That's, that's the only thing she eats. And she doesn't eat anything until three in the afternoon. So many dietary rules to avoid gaining weight. And I've got the people that you were talking about who will binge and then uh, starve themselves for two days. Uh, I've got somebody who will drink only uh, smoothies, uh, you know, avoid solid foods. You know, uh, people are suffering out there and they're really, really trying hard to overcome this by themselves. And you can't do this alone. No, you can't. You can't do it alone. You're not meant to do it alone. We're not meant to do anything alone. Um, but particularly something as challenging as, as recovery from an eating disorder, that takes a full team. And on that team, it is included in your loved ones. And so right. your loved ones, it takes a medical doctor, it takes a dietitian, a therapist, hopefully a group that would be amazing. Um, it certainly takes a full the full range of people to be involved to be able to treat the whole body. Totally. And and, and you can also go and get an evaluation. Uh, oftentimes, too, if you there, uh, some of the agencies that are more nationwide, or if there's one locally to someone, you can go and get an evaluation, and don't you don't have to commit. But then they might tell you what you asked about, like what level of care there are. You know, they would be able to assess for level of care, and they might make a recommendation that might feel too scary in the moment. But it, you know, at least you then know what you're what you're dealing with and where you could start. And what's the difference between food addiction and binge eating disorder? Is there something called food addiction? I know it's not in the DSM-5. Binge eating disorder is a bona fide eating disorder classified in the DSM-5, but food addiction is not. And uh, I know some people think they have food addiction because they're addicted to certain types of foods, very specific foods, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, it, there's a mixed, uh, a mixed crowd on whether or not food addiction is a real thing. But when they talk about differentiating, one was what you had mentioned, which is uh, binge eating disorder is classified as a mental, as a diagnosable mental illness. And food addiction that seems to be more biochemical in nature. They talk a lot about creating a, um, a dependency on the reaction you get from eating a particular food or a combination of foods and being like leaning towards that particular thing. Where binge eating disorder typically isn't the one go-to thing that they have to have in that moment. So it's more, it's much more complex and it has a lot more of an emotional component to it. So if I was a food addict, maybe I only want to eat chocolate 
And if I can't have chocolate, my day is ruined. Like chocolate is what I seek. I think it's high sugar, high fat, high salt foods uh, that uh, people who say they have food addiction tend to focus on. But you recommend groups, correct? Like a treatment group. If, If somebody went to a partial hospital program or they went to an eating disorder outpatient site, hopefully somebody with binge eating disorder could get into a group. What's the power of the group? If I'm struggling with binge eating disorder and I hate myself, uh, and there's a lot of self-loathing going on, and I feel hopeless and isolated. What's the advantage of being in a treatment group with other people that have the same illness? Oh, but there's so many advantages. I think I <laughs> want to start first by saying that you absolutely can be in a group. So I think sometimes the misconception is that this isn't an, uh, this isn't so serious. This isn't a thing that that it needs this level of care or needs that much treatment, and it absolutely does. So being, you know, I want to, I want to validate that and make sure that that's, that message is out there, that there is treatment available and it is a serious and chronic um, illness. On top of that, when you work with your peers, there's nothing more powerful than a peer saying something. So I can say something all day long, uh, but when it comes from someone who's sitting right next to you and going through the exact same thing, it's really, really powerful. And I think that it's really wonderful to see group members holding each other accountable so accountability is a big piece in recovery and also really wonderful to see other group members calling each other out. They can call like, you know, they can call out something to say like, that's no, you're completely full of it at that in this, this, and this. And that is that again, like, is it going to be a big, it's going to help someone move forward because it, it, it's hard to, to not be honest in a group that can, that is being honest, you know, so I, I, that vulnerability. I, 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 I think, I think you're 100% right. Uh, you can't, like what you said before, you can't recover without connection. I, I love that. Uh, Allie Wilkos, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, it, 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 I, I think the message that you're giving people with binge eating disorder is it, it's a bona fide illness and it is treatable and there's help out there if you know how to access it. And it's not as simple as just finding the right diet. Yes. And I just really respect the work that you do. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, I really respect the work that you do. And I appreciate you having this, this podcast and bringing this issue, you know, and and this to the attention of people. I think a lot of people are struggling in silence. And so I, I really appreciate you having me on and again, opening up hopefully lines of communication for people who really need it, really need that connection. So there's nothing worse than invalidated suffering, right? Suffering in silence that nobody sees and nobody understands. So Thank you very much, Allie Wilkos. And um, this is Recovery, uh, The Hero's Journey, and uh, we'll see you all next week. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, The Hero's Journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.